0: something inspiring when you listen to the garden question podcast. Hello I'm your host Craig McManus. Joe Phillips is the horticultural manager for the best preserved 19th century garden in the United States. The first planting at Hills and Dale's estate occurred in 1841 with the still growing original boxwoods. The garden estate is a horticultural testament to the three women, with their families, that have called it home. Today's garden stays true to the original design and each woman's contribution. Joe tells stories about how Alice Callaway loved hills and dells and was ahead of her time in so many ways. The horticultural staff reflects Mrs. Callaway's love every day in their care for the original garden design. You'll want to listen all the way to the end to appreciate how important historical gardens are to our future garden success. Joe earned her B.S.A. horticultural degree from the University of Georgia. This is episode 16, Hills and Dells Garden Wisdom, of the Garden Question Podcast. We will talk with Joe Phillips right after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Joe, how would you describe Hills and Dales?
1: Hills and Dales is an estate. It was the historic home of Fuller E. Callaway Sr. A lot of people are familiar with the Callaway name through Callaway Gardens. Hills and Dales predates Callaway Gardens. It was started by the gentleman that began Callaway Gardens. It Hills and Dales was actually started by his father and his mother. It was a private estate for many, many years. The very interesting thing to me about Hills and Dales is that the garden predates the estate, and it's kind of our reason to exist. There's a historic boxwood garden that's on the estate. That was started in the 19th century, actually around 1841. And when the Callaway family purchased this property, they purchased it because the garden was here. That was the very reason that they wanted this property. And they added onto the original parcel of land that they purchased and built a home here to complement the garden. It was, as I said, a private estate from 1916 until 1998. Post-1998, we knew that it was going to become a public garden, and we knew that that was the wishes of the family, of the last generation that lived in the house. So we opened to the public in 2004. Have been a public home and garden ever since.
0: That's well over 175 years of of a garden being in place. That's rather amazing. Would that qualify as the oldest garden in the state?
1: Don't know that it's the very oldest. It is considered one of the best preserved 19th century gardens in the entire country. The fact that it has been continued under cultivation. It has never fallen into complete disrepair. There's so much of it. The design is still so intact From the original 10th century design, it's pretty remarkable that it's right here in West Central Georgia, available for people to come and see.
0: What would be the best way to describe the garden's theme?
1: The historic garden is a boxwood parterre garden. The overarching theme of it is... Somewhat spiritual in nature. The woman that initiated the garden in the 1800s was named Sarah Farrell. And she and her husband, Blunt Farrell, lived here. The garden that she created, it was her life's work. She lived here for about 62 years gardening. She was a very well-educated woman, very a uh, religious woman. There's definitely a theme in the garden that emanates her relationship with God. There's a huge planting of the word God. We have a church garden. There are mottos, letters sculpted out in boxwood that say God is love. That kind of sets it apart from a lot of other historic gardens. There's not another one that we know of that has such a, a religious theme to it.
0: Sarah Farrell started the garden, and Ida Calloway was the second owner with her husband, and then Alice Calloway. How did the other two Calloway ladies influence the garden?
1: Ida, I heard this expression before, this is not original to me. I think it's in, I actually in our orientation film, but the garden beguiled her. Her husband, Fuller Sr., grew up in Troop County and knew Mrs. Farrell personally, knew of the garden. And he visited here and had a relationship with Mrs. Farrell that was quite warm from the time he was a boy on. He married Ida. He met Ida as a college student. She was going to college here in LaGrange. They met and eventually married. I'm sure that she knew Mrs. Farrell as well well. When the Farrells passed away, Cowley family lore that Mrs. Farrell had Prior to her death, had encouraged Fuller Senior to purchase this property because she knew of his love for it. That eventually did happen. It wasn't automatic, but that did happen. Ida, from all of her notes that we have, her gardening notebook, we have things that she has written, and we know that she spoke at different garden clubs. She already had a love for gardening, or she developed a love for gardening as a woman. This garden, obviously, as a couple, they both treasured it. I'm talking about Ida, Ida and Fuller Senior, and obviously wanted to preserve it. They did make some subtle changes to the Mm -hmm. garden after taking ownership of it, but they didn't completely, just completely remake it. They left Mrs. Farrell's design largely intact. They added some statuary. They added some water features. They added some benches, and they sort of added some refining touches to the garden, but they didn't completely make it over. We appreciate that. They, even that far back, recognized that it was something worth... Keeping And they always gave her credit for yeah. the garden. Obviously, Ida must have communicated that to her daughter-in-law, Alice, because Ida died in 1936. and Fuller Jr. moved in to Hillsendales, to the home here then. And Alice was a young wife. She was in her 20s and a fairly novice gardener. Obviously, her mother-in-law had passed that mantle of preservation on because I got to work with Alice for four years, and I know how important it was to her to be preserved. And she also gave Mrs. Farrell all the credit for its design. The two women's care of the garden, their appreciation for all the work that had gone into it, the realization that it's something very unique and special that needed to be preserved, and their communication to the next generation that their responsibility at after they were gone to carry that on as much as possible. Those are some of their primary Mm -hmm. contributions, other than just the work that goes in.
0: Sure, which is a lot every day, I would think. Did Alice Calloway add to the garden, or did she pretty much try to preserve what was there?
1: She gardened here for almost the exact same span of time that Mrs. Farrell did. Both of them 62 years, Mrs. Farrell and then Alice. And the sandwiched in between was her mother-in-law, Ida, for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. Gardens are not static. They cannot stay the same. Things are going to grow. Things are going to die. Trees are going to have to be removed, that sort of thing. So Alice never, I don't think she ever tried to keep it static. She would remove things if she thought they needed removing mm-hmm. I'm talking. talking. Talking about, you know, trees. Over the years, there were some large trees that she made the decision to remove if she thought that they were becoming a hazard, whatever reason. As far as changing the bed lines of the garden or changing paths, changing the overall layout of the garden, she did not do that. If if she made any changes at all, they were very minor.
0: She kept the structure of the garden then.
1: She kept the structure of the garden. Now, you know, she added in shrubbery, she added in a lot of azaleas. She, she did change some of the interiors of the beds because she said that Mrs. Farrell, when you look, we do have photographs of the garden from the late 1800s. Most of the ones that we have, not all, but most of the ones we have were made to be viewed with a stereoscope. So you get a 3D image when Mm -hmm. you put the the photo cards into the stereoscope.
0: Explain what a stereoscope is for people that are in the digital age and don't have any idea what we're talking about.
1: If you think about, I don't know if they would if if y'all people would would remember but I don't know if you remember the 3D view masters that my generation had where you would put a card in and and it would be a ring of photos and you would click to the next photo and through it you would see that image in, in 3D. It's very similar. Stereoscope is a device, sort of Similar to opera glasses, but it has a little bit more structure to it than that. And you can put a photo mm-hmm. card into a slot, and it's the card has two identical images. You know, it's divided in half, and there's two identical images on each side. Put it into the, mm-hmm. the slot and you look through the, the viewfinder, you look through the optical part, it marries the two and puts it in 3D. You can see the interiors of the beds were full of all kinds of things: shrubs, bulbs, annual perennials, an assortment of things in each bed. And there are a lot of beds in the garden. And of course, prior to the Civil War, the Farrells were slave owners. And so they did have, I'm sure, gardeners that worked to keep the garden. Although we do know that Mrs. Farrell was very personally involved in the garden. They did have a lot of human helpers to tend that garden. Probably post-Civil War, they probably retained a fairly large garden staff then. When I came to work here, there were four members on the garden staff, and I was one of them. I don't know how many people Ida had, and four is quite a luxury. Mm-hmm. The historic garden covers about an acre and a half, and it's pretty intensely planted. And then surrounding the historic garden, Alice had probably, all total, probably at least five acres that was all landscape around the house. And so that's a lot for four people to keep up. Also, by this time, the the tree cover that we have is largely southern magnolia they've gotten very very large over the years you know their roots go everywhere the boxwood are old so we've got a lot of dry shade and old boxwood and alice put a lot of ground cover into the interiors of the bed so she did make that change the stereoscope pictures and you see a lot of variety of plant material within the individual beds a good portion of the historic garden now has ground cover in those beds but we still do have some areas where we have color as well because people expect color and we've got lots of rubbery and trees that blooms as well
0: i was researching hills and dales explain to Who is the Alice filter that you use?
1: I did get to work with her for four years every day, five days a week. I did learn what she liked. And we do have her list of plants too. She kept some good inventory of plants that she had put into the garden. Some that aren't even here anymore, but we do know how many things that she did plant and the inventory list of things that she used. It's not my garden. It's not anyone's garden that works here now. We're trying to portray it as if someone were visiting the estate when Alice or Fuller Jr. were still living. If someone comes here so they could kind of get a true sense of what the estate must have looked like then, I try to run everything through that filter of what We know she planted, the colors that I know that she liked. That's what we use to choose our annuals that go into our annual beds. Also, you know, whether we, what we put into the house as far as floral design that goes into the house. I try to think like she would as much as possible.
0: Tell us a story about Alice Calloway and what would be a typical way she would handle things or garden or whatever, and just so we can get a sense of what type of person she was.
1: Yeah, I know this expression may be a little trite. She was a classic Southern lady in many, many ways. She was very genteel, very well-mannered, soft-spoken. She had an iron will. She had definite likes and dislikes. She was very gracious, extremely gracious, and very practical. She was brought up well-to-do, and when she married Fuller, they certainly were people of means. She never lost touch with, the world. What I appreciated about her so much was that she was out in that garden every day. She would meet us at the greenhouse. We reported to work at 8 o'clock and she was already there for whenever we got there with a list of stuff that she wanted to get accomplished that day in the garden. And she would work out with us from 8 to 12. Hmm. By the time I came on staff, Mr. Callaway had been deceased for two years and she ran the entire estate herself hmm. and she was already in her 80s. She would go in the afternoons and do what she called her desk work, but She was out in that garden every day, walking through the garden, brushing Mm -hmm. leaves off the boxwood. She was bending over to pick up a weed. She was constantly touching it and grooming it, you know, with her hands. Just really loved the garden. And she told me once there was something going on in my life personally that was very difficult. She told me that one of the best things that I could do in that situation was to work. Just to work in the garden, let the garden. I don't think she used the word magic, but you know, that was essentially kind of what she was saying. She told me that it had saved her life more than one time, that her emotional life more than one time. It would be very helpful and therapeutic to me, and it was. I just appreciated that. She didn't watch the garden from an air conditioned window in the house. She certainly could have and just come out whenever the weather was pleasant. She was in it and she didn't have to be, but it, it just was, it was her life's work. It was, she loved it. She absolutely loved it.
0: Knowing what you know about the garden, how do you recommend a visitor experience the garden? In other words, what kind of eyes should they come in and look for?
1: I truly think that one of the first things they would need to do would be to watch the orientation video that we have at the Visitor Center because it really succinctly recaps the back history of the garden and definitely gets them oriented before they come up to see it. It gives them a sense of the history and it's beautifully done. I think that they are better prepared to engage with what they see or to know what to expect if they see that first if they're self-guiding themselves through the garden, we do have a map. On the map, there are different little blurbs about the different areas of the garden that they're in that give a little short backstory to that. I would definitely recommend that they would refer back to the map. We are out in the garden. And when I say we, I'm talking about, you know, the garden staff. There's only one person on the weekends, but if they're coming on a weekday, we're usually all over the garden. And so if there are any questions, they can always stop to ask. Definitely, if there's something being just, described on the map that they really can't see because the outline of the garden is beautifully rendered on the map. I think it's very well rendered, but sometimes people, they're not always able to see what they're being shown because the scope of the map is from above and they're standing at a ground level.
0: it from different planes.
1: Right. There are definitely some details in the garden that they might possibly need someone to point out. Now, if they're coming as a group, if it's a group of 10 or more, and people don't have to experience the garden as a group, it is something that's very popular that they come as a garden club, or we have a lot of church groups that come and just some travel clubs that come. But if it's a group of at least 10, they can actually call ahead of time and request a guided garden tour. They get a gardener to go along with them, interpret the Mm -hmm. garden for Mm -hmm. them, actually give them a guided tour. I wish that every guest could get a guided garden tour, but because they're given by the garden staff, it's just not possible for us to break off and give an individual tour for each person sure. that comes in.
0: You're not only a gardener, you're, you're a host of the gardeners too.
1: That's true. We really like for people to have a great experience. It's very important to our executive director that people have a great experience here and you know, kind of experience some true Southern hospitality that they really feel like they've been guests of the family whenever they come. I'm a biased. I think that we really strive for that, and I I think that we usually, more so than often, hit that mark.
0: Do you have a favorite spot in the garden that you like to sit or that you're a favorite view?
1: My favorite spot in the garden is probably the church garden. It has some different elements to it. It's just such a quaint spot. It's a place where Mrs. Farrell created an outdoor church. Now, when you just look at it, you don't sense that you're in a church, but whenever all of the different different little elements that she planted in there to represent different aspects of a church are pointed out to you, then you, you get it then. As far as my favorite view, I love looking over the terrace that's above. The God planting is on the fifth terrace, as we call it, and you can see it from that level or you can actually view it from the next terrace above and look over. And I, I really love looking at that, especially after it's just been freshly clipped mm-hmm. and it's massive. It can be seen from the air, planes fly over. So anyway, that's that's a real favorite view. It's hard to pick favorite spot. I love the herb garden. Alice put it, the Alice did put in an herb garden and it. it's right adjacent to mrs Farrell's historic garden but she didn't have to undo any part of mrs Farrell's garden that we know of to put that herb garden in it's adjacent to the greenhouse it's beautiful you know like late spring and all through summer it's just gorgeous
0: you're planting all your herbs in the ground or do you have some in pots
1: mostly in the ground
0: but do you have a favorite plant in the garden
1: oh gosh
0: Well, let me ask you what's your what's your most favorite? You can rank them. You can give me top five.
1: I have a love hate relationship with the box, and of course. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I don't have boxwood at home, but I definitely appreciate them here. And I do appreciate them as an ornamental plant because I, I think they're the oldest cultivated plant that we have record of. They've been used an awfully long time. Just their history is, is just remarkable. I'm a rose fan. I love roses. Now we're not a rose garden, but we do have, you know, various roses in the garden. Of course, I love them. I'm one of those gardeners. I like anything that's in bloom. My favorite. When it's in bloom, oh, you're my favorite, and then something, mm-hmm. oh, you're my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to beat the white peonies whenever they're blooming. Yeah, <laughs> Alice put in a number, and there were probably some here. When due to the fact that they've been in cultivation for so long, Alice loved a cultivar called Festiva Maxima peony. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. Anyway, it's a white double peony does very well in the deep south and it has these flecks of crimson just a few flecks down in the center but it's predominantly white very fragrant and just drop dead gorgeous they're just beautiful and they've been in cultivation I know since the 19th century likely there were even some here that Mrs. Farrell has as possible the ginkgo that Mrs. Farrell planted has to be a favorite just because it's still here and she planted it and the Cunninghamia tree that's in the church garden and both of them would have been Mm you the mm-hmm rare trees when she put them in. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're massive now. The ginkgo is a male. We get that question sometimes from, from people that know ginkgos, although we do have a female ginkgo that Alice planted, but it's not in the historic garden. And I would guess I have to say I love those old southern magnolias, even though they're a terrible mess. We gardeners joke about them being job security yeah, because <laughs> they're limbed up, line the pathways through the garden so that people can walk through the path. They were limbed up. We see photos from Mrs. Farrell's time where they were already being limbed up when they were young. But oh, they're a mess. They bloom in May whenever all the leaves are falling. I joke about them blooming during leaf fall as being God's apology for all that mess. (laughs) All of the fragrant things in the garden, like the tea olive. Oh my goodness. It's it's my favorite when it's blooming for sure. It's very hard, Craig, for me to pick a favorite. There are a lot of great plants to experience and cherish here.
0: I looked at the list of what blooms year-round, and there's something blooming in the garden all the time.
1: That was Alice's aim. She really was trying to make it a year-round garden. That was her intent. I really do think that when she and Fuller Jr. decided that it should become open to the public, after they were gone. She was definitely working towards that, Mm -hmm. I, I know, in her later years. Even for her own enjoyment, though, she wanted something blooming all the time. And she also opened the garden over the years. It was open for the Garden Club of Georgia whenever they would have their annual tours. It wasn't open every year, but it was open several times on that annual tour of gardens over the years. And then she would have a few garden clubs usually every year that would come and see the garden. If they knew how to contact her and make the request, People could come in to see it. It was just not every day and much more rare.
0: Well, I knew of hills and dales and didn't even know that was the name. It's just driving by and seeing the front columns as a child. That's all I knew. I said, "There's got to be something nice back there." But of course, I wasn't a mm-hmm. being a kid at that time. I wasn't in the garden either. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I never imagined all that that's there now was there.
1: Most people do not.
0: What is the most unique plant there at the garden?
1: There's definitely some unusual things that she planted. Standpoint of, of odd to me, there's a plant here that I've not seen anywhere else. It's called a wheel tree. We do have a sign on it. It's not a large tree. It's, a, it's actually kind of a medium-sized shrub at this point. It was planted in the garden, but you know she had it planted before she passed away. Trochodendron, I think, is its genus. And don't ask me really any more about it. I, if I'd anticipated that question, I would have been a fount of knowledge about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have sent you the question.
1: Yeah, um, it's probably the oddest thing, but she liked the unusual Alice did. She liked things that were rare and she liked to be able to see if she could grow something, maybe cheat a zone or, or grow something that no one else had. There are unusual plants here. There are also plants that were unusual when she started growing them. She was ahead of her times. So they were unusual when she started growing them, but that maybe they're not unusual that much anymore. She was growing native wisteria, the wisteria frutescens, decades ago. I came to work here in 1994, and she probably had had it in the garden 15 or 20 years. The gardening world hadn't really caught up to that yet. She had put in a pretty nice collection of deciduous magnolias. Hmm. You know, we already had the southern magnolias that actually Mrs. Farrell planted most of the oldest magnolias that we have. They've already outlived their normal lifespan, still growing strong, but anyway, she added Added deciduous magnolias, several natives, and a few that are Asian. Mm-hmm. One of those that I love the most is an Asian species, and it's Magnolia denudata, and she has it in the church garden. If I had to pick one plant, absolutely a favorite, but it's it blooms white. It usually wants to bloom in mid-February, just ivory goblets of white all over the tree. It has a big massive head. It is the pollen parent of Magnolia salangiana, which we're pretty familiar with in the horticulture world. Mm -hmm. Salangiana is a hybrid cross between denudata pollen is the daddy. And Flora is the female. The cross between those two is where we got Magnolia salangiana And so denudata has the same kind of form of bloom, right. but it is ivory white. And I think there are a couple maybe of subspecies that have a burgundy eye mm-hmm. deep in the middle. Wants to bloom, like I said, very, very early, it's precocious. And so we hold our breath. If we get a little zephyr of warm air in mid-February, it's going to be trying to bloom in the middle winter. Some winter it skirts by. It doesn't bloom long, maybe a week, week and a half at the most. We might skirt through without having any hard, cold nights. It'll survive 30, 32, the blooms will. But if we, if we start You know, if we have 28 for very many hours, the blooms are toast. Yeah, doesn't hurt the tree. It leaves out later normally. You know, this year we had really good bloom from it.
0: I think this has been the best year for blooming that I can ever remember. It it seems like everything is just put on a show and earned their keep big time.
1: Yep. We had a cold enough winter. Largely, it was winter when it was supposed to be winter and not after everything had leafed out or Mm -hmm. blooming out, whatever. Those are always tragic. Sure. (laughs) Just some of the vagaries of gardening is something that we have to put up with. There's a Mrs. Galloway quip in the orientation video. She had been filmed in 1995 talking about the garden, and she admonishes people not to fuss about the weather, that there's nothing you can do about it, and it's just best to <laughs> just go on and and not
0: Goody talk pass. about it. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. we do
1: spend an awful lot of time fussing about the weather.
0: There's more with Joe Phillips from Hills and Dells Gardens and Estate right after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. How has the garden evolved since you've been there for, what, 25 plus years?
1: Biggest overall change, I guess, has been the transition from private to public. That was managed pretty gracefully. I'll have to give a lot of credit to her grandchildren. They're the trustees of the foundation that oversee us. They love this garden. They love this place. It was their grandparents' home. Mm -hmm. They grew up right here around the estate and still live here. They're our neighbors, still live adjacent to the estate. Hmm. And it's very, very dear to them. They didn't rush into opening. She passed away in 1998 and we didn't open until 2004. It was on purpose so that they could get all of their quote-unquote ducks in a row. Some wise choices, not do anything mm-hmm. you know, willy-nilly, half-cocked before we opened up. And I really appreciated that. There were a few changes that had to be made, a few areas that were asphalt that were converted into a hardscape that was a little more attractive, that sort of thing. But you know, overall, I I don't think that there've been truly shocking changes that we've had to adapt to. Some of the things that have happened, some of the vagaries of weather, you know, like a storm that takes out three magnolias in one night, that sort of thing. Garden has been amazingly resilient and mm-hmm. spared a lot of damage it has occurred all around us before and thankfully, mm. you know, we were spared. The Most pronounced change, I guess, is that the public gets to see it so much more now. Mm -hmm. We have visitors every day. That's been a very good thing. Last year during COVID, when we were shut down, it was just sad. went through spring and it was gorgeous. It was a really pretty spring here last year. It just seemed really sad that no one was here, no one was able to come. Thankfully we were able to work. Yeah. You know, yeah. the gardeners were not to have the public here to see it because people do really enjoy it so much. I think that Alice would be so pleased by how much how much joy it gives people yeah. that come to see it.
0: Mentioned weather challenges, what are some of the other challenges that you faced as a garden staff? The
1: threat of boxwood blight has been something that has concerned us. -hmm. And we did have a scare with it last December, December of of 20. We had not had any detection of boxwood blight on this property until then. And we found it at our visitor center. Hmm. It was in boxwood that was planted in the landscape outside of it before we opened to the public. It was out in front of the visitor center in one of the little courtyard gardens, unmistakably boxwood blight, although we did have it confirmed through the Mm -hmm. University. Of Georgia Laboratory.
0: How did you address it? We
1: were right in the middle of decorating for Christmas that week, but just as soon as we got all those decorations up, we ripped those boxwood out, bagged up the ones that were definitely infected, hauled them to the landfill, and had them buried. Then the others that remained that we Did not see any leaf spot on, much less defoliation. We still moved them all and and burned them on site. We drenched the soil. We got a torch and torched the soil. We excavated. Even though it's not soil-borne, we were just trying to get out the fallen leaves that had contaminations. Anyway, we went to great measures to remove all of that and We even vacuumed with a shop vac. We went to great lengths. We also drenched with disinfectant, the hardscape and surrounding plant material. We replanted in March. We recreated those parterre gardens in those front courtyards, but we did it with some dwarf yopin instead of boxwood.
0: Once you've got it in a spot, you pretty much can't plant boxwood back there, right?
1: We're hearing a lot of different things about boxwood blight now that I guess they've been dealing with it in Europe for a number of years and also in the other parts of the United States where it's been very devastating. Certainly you can't go back in with extremely susceptible boxwood and do nothing and not expect the same thing not to happen again. That makes any sense. There are resistant cultivars and there's been a lot of breeding work going on in this country for boxwood that is extremely resistant. So there is hope there with disease resistance, and then they're finding some chemical controls that can help manage the disease if it's caught early and if it's it dressed with vigor. Yeah. It would be devastating to this historic garden, I feel like, because the, all of the boxwood that we have up here is so susceptible. Largely, boxus sempervirens of which is a dwarf English edging box, extremely susceptible, and then also Common Box, which is boxus sempervirens, and they're They both reportedly have no resistance. Although I will say that the boxwood where it cropped up first was a microphylla, winter gem, and it is supposed to be resistant. And that's where it showed up first. Looked nice and healthy, but it was also we had to keep it sheared constantly because it was at these little parterre courtyard areas and winter gem grows pretty Fast goes pretty rapidly and gets sheared and sheared and sheared, probably at least three or four times a growing season. And that's stressful to a plant. Diseases and insects quite often will jump on stressed plants. Yeah. That does come to mind. We had common box down there too. And we know from the progression of the disease that it did not start in the common box when it started in that winter gym. Right. So resistance is exactly what it says. It's not immune, it's just it's resistant and compromise the resistance if shearing a plant all the time and stressing it out. Right, It's a formal garden, and that is a stressful practice. So that's something that we have to keep in mind trying to manage this garden up here. Even though to keep the form of it, we do have to shear. There are things that we need to do culturally to try to make it up a little bit to the plant for having to do that so much.
0: Sure. Do you, I call it punching holes in it to let the light in. Do you do that type thing?
1: Yes, thinning. Yeah, exactly. We do make an effort to do that. There's just always a tension, I guess, between being a public garden, being open like we are. And we wear so many hats because, like you mentioned before, we're hosts and gardeners. We have a lot going on and we try to do programs and this and that. I guess sometimes my complaint is that I would like to be able to actually spend more time doing some things that are tedious, like thinning. (laughs) the the boxwood yeah. and sometimes it m- my complaint is that some of those things kind of get short shrift because we're being called on to do this being called on you know you got to give this presentation we need you to do this we need you to do that there's just always a tension there there's never enough time never enough gardeners
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe you can train you some volunteers do you have volunteers do you use volunteers we
1: have a few volunteers that that are loyal Because the foundation that owns us is well-managed and well-endowed, that people don't see us as needing volunteers. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And so we have a few retirees that love to come and like to volunteer here. It's just been a little challenging getting a good core of volunteers here, getting them scheduled regularly enough to help us. So if we get a volunteer, that's gravy.
0: When the visitors come... What lessons can they learn or should they learn or would you suggest they learn that they could apply back to their home gardens or their home landscape?
1: I heard or read a quote several years ago that it really rang true to me and I I think that this would apply to anyone that wanted to pursue gardening. And that was that the best fertilizer in the world is the footstep of the gardener. If you really, really want to grow plants successfully, you've got to be in and amongst them fairly regularly and observing what's going on with them. If you just want to have a small container with some pretty plants in it, you've got to interact with it and know what they look like whenever they're just starting to need some water. You've got to look for insect. You've got to look for discolored leaves, that sort of thing. You just have to interact with your plant material. It's living. And there are some things that are more self-sufficient than others. There's no plants that are no care. If they've never gardened at all, they're just very intimidated by plants and they're so worried that they're going to kill something. I just try to tell them they've got to get over that. My grandmother told me a long time ago about sewing, that if you sew, you're going to rip. You're going to have to rip out some seams. And if you garden, unfortunately, you're going to kill some plants.
0: Yeah. You
1: just are. I wouldn't invest in anything that was so dear that you couldn't afford to lose it. If someone invested tens of thousands of dollars into a landscape, and I know that that happens, I would say they need someone that has a little experience to help them take care of that, or they better have some commitment to caring for it.
0: I was thinking on the lines of With all the trees you've got, you've probably got some good examples of shade gardens. They see how you do shade gardens, and they could take that and bring it back to their garden.
1: They certainly can. I think that people do come here with an eye towards what will do well, especially if they live in this same zone or or in the southeast Mm -hmm. or whatever, that they, they can look and see what we've got growing under trees that is thriving and living and carry that back home with them. And then also certain plants that have been treated a certain way, used as a spalier or pruned in a certain form.
0: Maybe container gardening.
1: Exactly. I think that a lot of people look at our containers and get some inspiration mm-hmm. from that. Also, even in the house, we use plant material from the garden in the floral designs and they can actually see what they could even cut from their garden to bring inside because that's, that's a huge joy with plants. You don't <laughs> have to be a floral designer to be able to cut some blooms and bring them inside, that's a big boon mm-hmm. to you know, having blooming plants flowing in your garden, even foliage material able to bring them inside. And so they get a lot of inspiration from that. And just fragrance, the fragrance that we have in the garden to plant plants that offer that scent is wonderful. And scent is those aspects of memory. They say you don't lose it. In other words, there are things from your past, from your childhood, aromas that you will smell and it can bring all that back to the present day. I think so many people do get inspiration from all of the fragrant plants we've got. And because we do live in the South, things that will take sun, things that will perform in full sun and brutal sun, and sometimes things that are kind of unexpected. Yeah. We've got caladiums growing in full sun, but there are particular kinds of clay.
0: When I was growing up, Caladium was just a shade plant.
1: Shade plant, exactly. There's been so much development. We try not to, because we are a historic garden, we don't advertise that maybe we're using the newest of the new or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because we are trying to give that sense of of history. We're not a brand new display garden, is what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah. But
1: we do take advantage of caladiums that have been used in this garden, we know, since Mrs. Farrell's time. Now, of course, they've changed, and we are still using some of the varieties that Alice used and that were prevalent whenever she gardened here, but we do bend the rules a little bit sometimes and use something that is more disease-resistant than maybe than she had or has another attribute that Mm -hmm. has made it a little bit better.
0: What is your earliest garden memory?
1: A child memory would be probably my grandmother and my great-grandmother's gardens. Both of them love plants. My mom loves plants. I remember being just absolutely captivated. My great-grandmother had spirea prunifolia and it blooming very, very early. And I remember as a young child and the, the little blooms looked like little individual white roses. I was just enchanted. So it was just so, so pretty. I remember the plants that she had in her garden and her daughter, my grandmother, how much she loved gardening and she loved all vegetable gardening and she loved ornamental gardening too. Then they both did
0: you get to participate in those?
1: I did. We always had a very, very large vegetable garden that was the three generations took care of it. Canned from it and preserved and froze things from it. So we always participated in that. And my great-grandfather had been a farmer. He was the last full-time farmer. We still lived on 55 acres. We still had some cows on and my grandfather grew watermelons and cantaloupes and that sort of thing. It's always something growing during the growing season. And it's always a topic of conversation about how the gardens were doing or what was growing. And I grew up in a farming community. I can barely remember a time when that connection to the land wasn't there. Probably the first thing that I grew was some gladiolus that my grandmother gave me some bulb. All I did was put them in the ground and grew these spikes of flowers. As a teenager I babysat some children and the husband was a forester and he also had become a hobby rose grower. He growing hybrid tea roses had just captured his interest. And he sort of did that as a hobby. It was a release for him. He was very good at it. He gave me a few hybrid tea roses that he had tea budded and grafted himself. Mm-hmm. That was the start. I planted them in our backyard and that was the start. And he told me how to take care of them. Yeah. That hooked me.
0: Is that your beginning of your love affair with roses?
1: hmm Yep.
0: Is that what spurred on a horticultural career?
1: Probably. I didn't. Initially, think that I was going to go into horticulture whenever I finished high school. I was a biology major first. I just loved the natural sciences. Thought that I might be interested in medicine, actually. Mm -hmm. Briefly cleared pre-med, and then I got into upper-level chemistry. (laughs) And I I did not like (laughs) upper-level chemistry. I realized that chemistry was going to be consuming my life for years to come. Chemistry wasn't the aspect of science that I really loved. And plus, I met some other pre-med students that were further along than I was, and they had no life. I mean, no life, none. And they were full of anxiety all the time because they could not make anything less than an A. Even an A sometimes was. I mean, it was just, I just really did some soul searching and I just, I just Didn't think I wanted it that badly. Thought and thought about what I would really like to do and chose horticulture.
0: In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer?
1: Alice Calloway, without a doubt.
0: How did you and Alice Calloway form a relationship and you got to work for her?
1: Well, you never know sometimes what impression you're making on someone. You just don't know until later. I met Alice I was working retail here in LaGrange. The first time I met her, I was not working at a nursery. I did later transfer out to a nursery and she was a customer there as well. But I probably saw her more often at the business that I worked to prior to that. And it was actually a feed and seed store that I worked at for several years. I did use my degree. We did sell some plant. We sold a lot of things geared towards people that were growing vegetable gardens and that sort of thing. But she was a customer there. The store manager had actually worked for her when he was a younger man. When she would come into the store, she would usually gravitate to him because she knew him well and he would wait on her. When I was told that was Alice Calloway, I didn't try to help her. I knew who she would want to find. She happened to come in one day and he wasn't there. Did get to assist her with her purchases that day. We talked a little bit and then she came in another time and we had some plants. It was at the end of the season. We weren't a nursery. We really didn't have the facility to overwinter them. One of them was a clematis and I asked her if she wanted it, if she would just take it and give it a home. And she said, well, you know, it'll overwinter. It will live. Yes, ma'am. We really don't have facilities for it. So she took it. I might have assisted her maybe one other time. Fast forward probably at least three or four years. I was in between full-time jobs. I was working part-time, not here in LaGrange. LaGrange would have been a commute for me. And I was trying to figure out exactly which direction I wanted to go. And I got a phone call. I needed to get in touch with Alice Calloway. And it was from this man that I had worked with at the store that had been a former employee of hers. And he was no longer at that particular place of business any longer. She had contacted him asking him if he knew how to get in contact with me. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. Her husband does a lot of work for us. So I I said, what do you think she wants? He said, well, she probably wants to hire you. I called her. I, I Called her on the phone and her number was in the book, told her who I was. And she invited me to come to the garden that she wanted to talk to me. She said she had an opening and she remembered me from the store. She thought that she wanted to hire a woman. Would I be interested? I was. <laughs> I was hired. And I guess, you know, the rest is long history. I do have a very, very strong faith. I was at a crossroads in my life, career-wise and, and job-wise. I was working Sundays, and I, it was a very temporary job. I wanted something where I did not have to work, at least on Sundays. I wanted to carry my children to church. I wanted to be able to go to church with them. I just prayed, Lord, I need a job where I won't have to work on Sundays. In less than a month, Alice Calloway was trying to get in contact with me. This job, is a gift. It's a huge gift that I got. It's just a dream job. For a woman in horticulture in this part of Georgia, as rare as hen's teeth. And it was given to me.
0: Prayers answered.
1: Very humbling. Very, very
0: humbling. Just trusting in the Lord. Mm -hmm. What is your most valuable garden mistake?
1: My most valuable gardening mistake. That is a good question. There have been a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're not gardening unless you're making mistakes, are you?
1: You're not gardening unless you're making mistakes. There's hardly a lesson in gardening, I don't think, that I haven't learned by making some sort of mistake. Sure, you, you have dumb beginner's luck sometimes, but there's just a, an awful lot of mistake-making to be had to hone any kind of gardening skill, I think. The boxwood here been so difficult, I don't know that they're a mistake as much as they've been my biggest garden challenge, and that's not quite what you ask, just all the mistakes that I've made with them learning how to keep them happy. And it's not just one. It's learning how important pH is to them. It's learning the importance, like you said, of thinning them if you shear them, not keeping them too wet, not keeping them too dry. It's all of those things. Plus, they're old boxwood, and old plant material has its own set of issues. They don't like for us to dig around their roots. We've learned that all that ground cover that Alice put in those beds was a godsend because they would not put up with us disrupting their root systems all the time and trying to Mm you know, put more plant material in. I don't know if there's a lesson that you can learn without making a few mistakes.
0: What about... In your own garden.
1: In my own garden. Planting things too close together. Just learning and accepting and realizing that what that plant label says is going to be its ultimate size is a lie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I think they've gotten worse.
1: I read the disclaimer just within the last few years that, oh, well, that's its size in like 10 years because they'll give you this ultimate size. And so now I know, now that I'm old, I know these things. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether they think that most people are going to have ripped it out after 10 years or moved to another house after 10 years or what, but those things keep growing. Their ultimate size is big. Even some things that are quote unquote dwarf just get big slower. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so probably my most bad, you know, has been miscalculating the ultimate size of things. And that has taught Mm -hmm. me so much about spacing. It may look ridiculous to start with, but believe you me, it's going to fill up that space ultimately
0: like for you to complete this statement, in my garden, I have.
1: In my garden, I can think of, of a couple different things. In my garden, I have such fun. In my garden, I have such memories. Even my roses, I've got some old roses that when I say, oh, they've been in my possession for a long time because I treat them like children. I, you know, In my garden, I have such memories. I, I think that's the thing that stands out the most to me. I think about different places. My children are grown now, but I can still see them posing in front of certain beds, looking back through pictures and just seeing how those same plants have grown and changed over time. They're they're just such memories there.
0: You have any future plans for your garden?
1: Yes. When I retire. But to actually call it a garden now, my home gardening is that's being pretty generous. Hills and Dales when gets most of my energy and the best of my gardening efforts. You know, I do have a landscape at home. I would like for it to be slightly more garden esque after I retire, put in some more pathways. I would love to have a fenced in area and have within it a kind of a combination herb vegetable garden and less grass. Thankfully, my husband likes to garden too, and he considers me the quote-unquote expert. He loves to add some of the little touches and that makes a garden a garden.
0: Joe, tell us how listeners can connect with you and learn more about Hills and Dales.
1: I'm the horticulture manager at Hills and Dales Estate. I can be reached by email at jphillips at hillsanddales.org. You can be connected via our website, At hillsanddales.org, it's a beautiful website, and people can also contact our visitor center.
0: Joe Phillips, thank you for your amazing insights into Hills and Dales gardening and how important historical gardens are to our future garden success. This has been Episode 16, Hills and Dales Garden Wisdom with Joe Phillips on the Garden Question Podcast. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.